Welcome to Explore Histories Podcast. I'm Dr. Scott McLean, and I'll be leading you on this exploration of haunted chambers in Lincoln's Inn. This podcast is quite different from previous ones and meant to be a good bit of fun, something I just couldn't resist. A number of the podcasts I've done so far have been based upon unpublished primary sources that I've been able to procure. This was the case with Harry's Letters from the Front and Memories of Old Warlingham, both of which have proved to be very popular. This one is also based upon a manuscript I uncovered, but due to the subject matter, decidedly different. In February of 2019, I attended a local auction and purchased two large boxes of ephemera. There was all sorts of stuff in these boxes, but what had caught my eye were some interesting materials, photos, newspaper clippings, and books on Stonehenge. Having lectured on Stonehenge during my academic career and ran an archaeological field school, I've always been interested in prehistory and archaeology in general. As I looked through the boxes, though, it became clear that what I had stumbled upon was something more than a few bits and pieces that someone had collected on Stonehenge. There were photos of medieval Irish crypts, mummified capuchin monks from Sicily, x-rays of Egyptian mummies, and various works related to archaeology in Britain and the Middle East. The person who had owned the materials clearly had a passion, perhaps obsession, with the supernatural, with ancient civilizations and the occult. I never put much more thought into it until I noticed a typed manuscript with the name Harold T. Wilkins across the top. I didn't take long to figure out that the manuscript was a piece written by a very well-known British writer of the mid-20th century. Harold T. Wilkins was born in 1891 and is generally described as a journalist and, quote, pseudo-historian. He was well-educated reading English and history at Cambridge. During World War I, he was imprisoned as a conscientious objector and from an early age demonstrated that he was interested in all things unusual. He wrote numerous books on unsolved mysteries, the mystery of Atlantis, UFOs and the like, and was an influential figure in the hollow earth theory that would later spawn all sorts of late night B-movies based on lost worlds beneath our feet. The manuscript which I found is based upon his research into one of his many topics of interest, ghosts. The manuscript is typed, five pages in length, and highly entertaining. In it, he provides accounts of the ghosts haunting Lincoln's Inn in London, but in doing so provides us with much more, something I will address at the end. As he published quite a bit, I'm assuming that this was published somewhere. Across the top of the manuscript, it says, please send proofs to H.T. Wilkins and his address. So it was going through a process where it was going to be published or was published. However, I haven't been able to find it and thought this is something to be very hard for most people to access. So well worth a read. So let's get started. So, The Haunted Chambers in Lincoln's Inn by Harold T. Wilkins. London, whose undying romance, not all the ultra-modern commercial palaces towering on the embankment, are all the monstrosities in steel girders and fair concrete. But these buttresses horribly transforming the old world charm and seclusion of West End squares can quite kill as one priceless asset which our super travel agents have overlooked in their desire to sell beautiful Britain to the foreign friends visiting these shores. That asset is majestically incorporated in the haunted royal palaces and great ghost-ridden old houses, making the part that is forever older England in our metropolis of the machine age. The great shapes that haunt royal palaces have frequently been written about, But legal reserve and caution and other understandable causes have thrown a veil of secrecy over certain strange events 
happening in recent years inside the enclaves of the old historic inns of court. After sundown, when the top-hatted porters bar the great double doors and emit through the wickets none but members and tenants of the inn, one can merely hint at the queer stories whispered therein, disconcerting shapes and unpleasant faces seen whisking down dark and dingy corridors in the small hours, or looking out of windows as old as the days of Queen Anne. It is most difficult to get anyone in the inns to speak of these occurrences, and concerning the bizarre event of which one here writes, I may say that it required no little research and an amount of investigation that a Scotland Yard agent would deem not inconsiderable to obtain details and locate the site of this eerie vigil. The Tudor red brick and the old-fashioned early Georgian houses, many stories which surround New Square, Lincoln's Inn, London, do not as a rule suggest mystery of tragedy to, to those who saunter slowly through this quiet enclave on a Saturday afternoon in the London season when the sun shines out of a light blue sky and fleecy clouds oft driven like a flock of sheep by the dogging winds of the south. The bright emerald sward of the railed enclosure is gay with flaunting tulips and between the holes of the exotic oaks you may, if you stand and watch for a moment, Catch a glimpse of the sprightly mallard showing off his alar speculum to the strange lady duck he picked up on his trip abroad in the winter before, and who seems to ignore him entirely in his entices round the stone-winged pool in the centre. No bewigged barrister jauntily thrusts his hands under the tails of his robe like an old-fashioned Victorian woman holding up her long skirts, while a solicitor's practice clerk follows behind him with law books and red-taped bundle of documents to his chambers. It is Saturday afternoon, and the top-hatted porter idly listens to the drowsy, faraway chimes of the London church bells, beckon into the deeper booming of Big Ben and the clang of the law court's mystery clock. Yet up the stairs of one of those drafty halls of these chambers of many flights are a set of rooms in which thirty years ago two barristers kept strange vigil at midnight one summer. They were rooms that had been occupied by the poet Lionel Johnson, when just before the end, he turned recluse, shunned mankind, wrote far into the night, and boozed to drown melancholy and his own sad thoughts. Quote, for a year past, so far as this journal is concerned, wrote E.A.B. in the Academy in October 1902, he had been silent. Repeated attempts to get word or touch with him failed. He refused to see a messenger or to answer letters. The closed door of his chambers in Clifford's Inn was an impenetrable bar to any kind of intercourse. On September 22nd, 1902, we received the following letter. Quote, you last wrote to me, sometime, I think, in the last century, but I hadn't the grace to answer. But I was in the middle of a serious illness which lasted more than a year, during the whole of which time I was not in the open air for even five minutes, hopelessly crippled in hands and feet after the long spell of enforced idleness. I feel greedy for work. Unquote. The rest is soon told. A few days after the above letter was written, he was found by a policeman, lying unconscious in Fleet Street. He had fallen and fractured his skull. He was taken to St. Bartholomew's Hospital, where he died unconscious on 4th October 1902. Last Saturday, his age was 35. He was unmarried. Johnson was not a member of any of our four inns of court, to which he successively migrated. But like many before and since his time, he found their seclusion ideal for his work. In New Square, Lincoln's Inn, he occupied rooms in an old-fashioned early Georgian house. In his rooms, three sitting and a bedroom, 
the only rooms in the building inhabited at night, except for the caretaker who lived in the basement. They were on the third floor and shut off from the rest of the house by a short staircase and a solid door. He paid an unusually low rent and said there must be something queer about the rooms, for in two years there had been seven or eight tenants and all had left in a hurry, and rumors said they came to an untimely end soon after. The agents were anxious to let the rooms at any price. My friend wrote one of the barristers to the London Daily Mail on May 16, 1902, filled up most of the wall space with books, read, wrote, and mused most of the day and part of the night, admitted in his confidential moments that things happened, did not specify exactly what occurred, but after he became nervous and fidgety last month, he left the chamber suddenly, declaring he could not stand it no longer. He cleared away all his belongings, and once more the rooms were empty. With another friend who is much the same temperament as myself, I arranged an all-night sitting in the rooms. Two chairs and a table were absolutely the only furniture left in the place. We unlocked the front door a little before midnight on Saturday last, locked it behind us, and turned on the electric light. We were alone in the house. After mounting the stairs from the outer oak, there was a smallish room, through which we passed into the principal apartment. This had a fireplace in the north wall, and two doors in the south wall, through one of which was the entrance from the stairs. The other door was that of another small room, which had no other means of communication. So there was no connection between the two small rooms, save through the large room. We searched the place thoroughly, closed and locked the windows, and pulled down the register of the three fireplaces. There was absolutely no possibility of anyone being hidden anywhere in the rooms. There were no cupboards, no recesses, nor dark corners, no sliding panels. Even a black beetle could not have escaped unobserved. The walls were entirely naked. There were no blinds or curtains. On the floor of the two smaller rooms, we spread powdered chalk, such as you use for polishing dance floors. We had been warned that nothing happened in a room in which people were watching. The doors leading to the little room were closed. We sat in the big room and waited. We were both wide awake, entirely calm, self-possessed, and sober, expectant and receptive, but in no way excited or nervous. Both of us had traveled a good deal. At 17 minutes to one, the door opposite to us on the right, leading to the little room to which there was no communication, save through the room in which we were sitting, unlatched itself and opened slowly to its full width. The electric light was on in all the rooms. The click of the turning of the door handle was very audible. We waited expectantly. Nothing happened. At four minutes to one, precisely the same thing occurred to the door on our left. Both doors were now standing wide open. We'd been sitting for a few seconds, watching the doors. Then we spoke. This is unusual, said I. Yes, said the other man. Let's see if there is any resistance. We both rose, crossed the room, and expecting something, found nothing. Drafts, of course, was our comment, and we sat down again. But we knew there was no possibility of drafts because everything was tightly shut. While the two doors had stood open, we both noticed that there were no marks on the sprinkled chalk. We talked again, but there's a tension, a restraint we'd not felt before. Longest silences ensued. I'm sure we were both wide awake. At 1.32, my watch was on the table with a, a pencil and slip of paper on which the times were noted, the right-hand door opened again, exactly as before. The latch clicked, the brass handle turned, slowly the door swung to its full width. In 11 seconds, without jar or recoil, at 1.37, the left-hand door opened as before, 
and both store doors stood wide. We did not rise, but looked on and waited. At one forty, both doors closed simultaneously of their own accord, swinging slowly and gently, too, within about eight inches of the back, when they slammed with a slight jar, and both latches clicked loudly, one a fraction of a second later than the other. Between one forty-five and one fifty-five a.m., this happened twice, but the opening and closing were in no case simultaneous. There were thus four unaided openings and closings, excluding the one we had done ourselves. The last openings took place at 2.07 and 2.09 a.m. We both noticed marks on the chalk in the two little rooms. We sprang up and went to the doorways. The marks were clearly defined birds' footprints. In the middle of the floor, three in the left-hand room, the passage room, and five in the right-hand room. The marks were identical and exactly two and three-quarter inches in size. Now, neither of us ornithologists, but we compared them with the footprints of a bird about the size of a turkey. There were three toes and a short spur behind. The footprints converged diagonally towards the doors to the big room, and each one was clearly and sharply defined, with no blurring of outline or drag or of any sort. This broke up our sitting. We raised our voices to normal pitch, measured the footprints, made a sketch of them, lighted our pipes and sat down in the big room. Nothing happened. The doors remained open and footprints clearly visible. It was just about 2.30 a.m. We waited till 3.30, discussing things we understood nothing about. Then we went home, locking the outer oak behind us and dropping the key and an envelope into the letterbox of the house agents nearby on the embankment. We were greeted by an exquisite opal and mother-of-pearl sunrise. The story created somewhat of a sensation in London. The Daily Mail was, was deluged with letters from people who wanted the address of the haunted rooms to which the editor made reply. This correspondence to the experiment could not be repeated at any rate for the, for the present or the address divulged. Mr. E.T. Bennett, then secretary of the Society for Psychological Research, promised that his committee would investigate the story. There's no record that such investigation was, in fact, made, although there was a curious unofficial sequel. Mrs. N.W. Verrill, who, who at the time was making a series of experiments in automatic writings, published a series of articles in Proceedings of the Society of Psychological Research, October 1906, in which she wrote, quote, On May 2nd, 1901, I had a small party of ladies to dinner when my husband was dining out. On the departure of the guests, I had gone upstairs, when I felt a sudden desire to write automatically, came down again to find the materials. I wrote in the dark at 11.10. Among them occurred the following in the script. Do not hurry. Date this. Hoc esquid volutandum. This is what I wanted at last. Cux pedibus inferens difficultatum. Superavit magnapora ediuvus persistens. Semper. Chalk sticking to the feet has overcome the difficulty. You will help greatly by always persevering and then sketch. I showed the script to my husband next day. He could make nothing of it. and were much amused by the drawing of that, what we often refer to in the next days as uh, the cockley bird. On the evening of May 16th, I saw in the Westminster Gazette an abridged account from the Daily Mail of our incident occurring on the night between Saturday and May 11th and Sunday, May 12th, which recalled to me the script above quoted. The script was written at 11.10 p.m., and the first open of the door was at 12.43 a.m. 
The one-time haunted chambers are located in the angle of a block of buildings on the western side of the new square, Lincoln's Inn, at the top of the building. I've heard they used to be haunted, said a white-haired solicitor's managing clerk to me. His offices are two doors away, but the agents could never get people to stop in the rooms on the top floor. But the ghost, or whatever it was, caused the trouble seemed to have stayed away quite a long time now. There seems to be a cycle in the occurrence of these phenomena. For example, about every 25 years in the 19th century, English newspapers recorded stories of mysterious bell ringing in widely separated parts of the country. But to find a parallel with this fantastic episode of a bird's footprints in chalk, one has to turn to the memoirs of Sir John Rearsby, who in 1687 was governor of York Castle. He, if he is the writer, sure as he was not a great believer in witchcraft. Quote, one of the soldiers being upon guard at 11 o'clock at night, March 1687, at Clifford Tower Gate, York Castle, hearing a great noise at the castle and coming to the porch, there was a scroll of paper creep under the door, which, as he imagined, by moonshine turned first into the shape of a monkey, then of a turkey cock, which moved to and fro by him. He went to the jail and called the under-jailer, who came and saw the scroll dance up and down and creep under the door, where there was scarce the room of the thickness of half a crown. This had from the mouth both the soldier and the jailer. The end. So what do we make of all of this? What can we learn from it? Well, there's a few things. One, like, it's a good story, and London is full of old houses with stories like this. I lived at a castle for quite some time when I was teaching, and we had all sorts of ghost stories, but in 16 years, I never once saw one, although many of us looked. But there's more to it than that. I think what I quite find fascinating about this document, and about Harold Wilkins in general, is just that fascination with the unexplained. That this was a time when people in the early 20th century, late Victorian period, early 20th century, were experimenting with new ideas. Um, this is the age of electricity, which was, you know, bringing, opening up all sorts of doors to people. It was fascinating. There was all kinds of things that were new and exciting. For example, Wilkins regularly wrote articles on John Baird's experimentation with the first TV in the 1920s. Um, this was creating all sorts of interest and possibilities for people to find out more. And it particularly ties in with one development which was very popular in the late Victorian period and through the First World War. And that was the growth in psychology and experimentations with the supernatural. Uh, people trying to contact um, loved ones that had passed. Particularly, we see this with the family of soldiers who had died in the First World War, wanting to get in touch. So we see a growth in things like seances, uh, the use of um, mediums and so on, to try and connect with this other world. So this is something that he ties into. And of course, when you think about the world at this time, there's all sorts of interesting things going on. But there's also the trauma of the First World War that people had been through. Um, death was everywhere. Life had changed. People were questioning their world. We see that in this document. Some of the comments he makes early on about the steel girders and the huge skyscrapers that were now dominating London. He very much is missing the, the old buildings which were being uh, changed. And of course, this was something which would expand 
you know, exponentially after the, the horrors of the Second World War, where large parts of old London were destroyed, particularly East London. And so this is a period of rapid change, and people are trying to catch up to it. Um, he mentions the, the machine, and I think that is very important. Um, it's part of that growing movement we had, the arts and crafts movement in the late 19th century. People were reje rejecting industry and machine, the machine and technology wanting to go back to what they saw often as a golden age, of a pre-industrial age, although there's a lot of things about that period that were quite negative. Um, a lot of great positive things, but of course it wasn't equally spread across society. Not everybody was enjoying electrification, automobiles, and so on in the early 20th century. That would take decades before that would come in, certainly by the 30s and 40s. But he really taps into all of this. His writings are all about this new world which was being opened up and what could be found with some of the new technologies. Um, a lot of his theories, a lot of his ideas have been proven to be uh, incorrect. Uh, he really did believe in this hollow earth idea. He thought there were tunnels under Brazil. Um, was one of the places he was obsessed with. He was very much obsessed with South America. And believed that there were tunnels that would lead down into this lost world. Uh, that was something which was very popular uh, in sort of science fiction and so on in this period. And then after the 50s, we get into the whole um, idea about UFOs, which he wrote a lot about. And it is still something which is, is very popular uh, in Britain and around the globe. So some interesting things that he's tapping into. And a nice little story, but one we can learn a bit, uh, you know, a bit more about um, and um, sort of tap into this strange and unusual happening, um, but it tells us a lot more about the period and about Wilkins as an individual. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. Uh, go visit the Explore History uh, website at explorehistory.co.uk and we'll have more podcasts coming soon.